Larry and Connie Van Oosten of Erie, Illinois, were kidnapped and terrorized by a man who was out to steal their hard-earned retirement savings. But Larry and Connie had an unshakable faith in God, and it helped them survive the ordeal. We'll find out today if it would be enough to help them stay strong enough to survive realizing that the kidnapper was someone they knew. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I am your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. And I'm so glad you've joined me for the second half of our story. After we see where it intersects with our faith, I hope you'll join forces with me to investigate how each one of us can be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. This is season three, episode 22. We're wrapping up the story from last week's book, Rescued for a Reason by Larry and Connie themselves, as told to A.L. Rogers. And like last week, we've got Lori Prather, our Unlovely Truth chaplain, who's going to join us to see where we can draw some lessons out of this story and apply it to our own lives. Larry and Connie's kidnapper had no way of knowing that the police were already on to him. They had surveillance pictures from that bank video. They knew what his car looked like, so they were staking out the Van Oosten's house. And he followed his plan where he went back to clean up the scene of his crime. And when he did, they nabbed him. His first words to law enforcement as they took him into custody were, how did you know it was me? Now, isn't that like our typical true crime perpetrator? Thinks he's smarter than everybody else. He thinks he's planned so well that he'll never, ever get caught. But I will give 40-year-old Chad Shipper a little bit of credit. Once they had him, He gave up the location of the house where he was holding Larry and Connie. Authorities got to the house as fast as they could. And when Larry and Connie heard the commotion, they assumed that it was members of Chad's gang. He'd been telling them that he was part of a group and that there were always people watching them. They assumed that those people had come to kill them. Now, just imagine that. I would be so freaked out. But the first thing that Connie and Larry did was... They remembered to pray. They got ready to meet their God if that was what was going to happen. But imagine, imagine their relief when they realized that it was the local police with FBI agents there to set them free. It had been over 48 hours and finally they were being set free. They were taken for thorough medical exams. They answered questions for law enforcement. They were reunited with their family. And suddenly, they had a new trauma to deal with. They found out that they actually knew their kidnapper. In fact, they'd known him since he was a little kid. Their families had gone to the same church together, and Larry and Connie had even been Chad's Sunday school teachers at one point. Can you even imagine that sense of betrayal? That sense of why did he not know right from wrong better? And to add insult to injury, You and I have listened to enough podcasts. We've watched enough true crime on TV. We know that justice isn't swift. It took two long years to get through Chad's trial, his conviction, and his sentencing. And in the meantime, Chad decided that he would torment and traumatize them just a little more from his jail cell. Just like it took a team to free Larry and Connie, it takes a team to keep our communities safe. Because when you stop and think about it, all of us are victims of crime. Even if we weren't the direct victim, we might be a friend or a family member 
or we might just have a little less sense of safety in our community. We all need to work together. So I hope you'll join my team. If you want more content like you're getting from the podcast, if you want more ideas on how to take care of yourself, how to step out and help neighbors, go to my website, theunlovelytruth.com, and you'll find a button you can click to join my membership site. I will be so excited to see you there. While awaiting trial and sentencing, Chad wrote letters to the Von Ustens. He gave them to inmates that were getting ready to be released, having them mail them so that he thought they couldn't be traced back to him. In two of these letters, he posed as an elderly woman who claimed that she had also been kidnapped. She used her own, quote, experience to urge Connie and Larry to forgive the way she said she had. She also told them that her own kidnapper had gone on to become a pastor because she pushed for his early release. She asked Connie and Larry to pray and to ignore anyone who would tell them not to do what she was telling them. How coercive and spiritually abusive. In fact, it was so coercive and spiritually abusive that Larry was immediately suspicious. He contacted police, who, of course, suspecting that Chad just might be behind this, decided to search his jail cell. They found detailed escape plans. He hadn't changed a bit. In the end, all of his schemes, all of his delaying, all of his plans did nothing for him. He was sentenced to life in prison. Connie, Larry, and their children, Jeff and Amy, all read victim impact statements at his sentencing. But what about all the other victims? The indirect victims who didn't get to read a victim impact statement. There was the man who laid carpet at Connie and Larry's house. He was briefly a suspect. His house was searched and he was even interrogated. And of course, Larry and Connie's extended family suffered as they waited to see if their loved ones would be found and especially found alive. And they all continue to suffer the effects of extreme trauma. The community was rudely reminded that what happened to Connie and Larry really could have happened to any of them. It could have happened to any of us. And there were other victims that we rarely acknowledge. The family of the perpetrator. They have to live with the shame of what Chad did and the guilt that they either didn't see it coming or they did and didn't do anything to stop him. Not surprisingly, Larry and Connie knew that something good could come from their terrible experiences. And that's why they share their story. They tell people how they've actually deepened their relationship with God. They trust him more because they know that he was with them throughout the entire ordeal. And now joining us to talk about how we can try to handle betrayal on maybe a little lesser scale in our own lives is the Unlovely Truth Chaplain, Lori Prather. For those of you who haven't heard her before, she's a pastor, a teacher, a writer, and just a very biblically sound woman with a lot of wise insights to share. I am so excited to have Lori Prather back this week. Last week was fun, so I know this week will be great, too. (laughs) Thank you. And we start off very dramatically with a big plot twist. So it turns out that the man who abducted this couple was someone they had known for years. 
Which in retrospect, you know, he had the little voice changer and everything. So you kind of had to wonder. But he had actually been in a Sunday school class that they taught when he was young. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, the betrayal. The betrayal. And, of course, most of us are not going to get kidnapped by someone we had in a Sunday school class. But we all have to deal with betrayal, whether it's something at church, something in our family, something in our friend group. And it can rock your faith. It really can. Absolutely. So what do we do when we're facing that? Well, first of all, I have to say, this cannot be your new excuse for not serving in kids' ministry. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> That's on behalf of all children's pastors out there. Like, if you hear that excuse, you'll know it's our fault. Um, so not that is not the typical response of the kids that you serve in, in kids' ministry. Um, yes, absolutely. Betrayal can shake us to our, our core, especially, especially depending on who it is. And I think just when I just think of my own life, I think the most important thing I can do, it's sort of like when I make a mistake, when someone else makes a mistake that hurts me, it it can be the same response, which is, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from their betrayal? Was there, did I have a piece in it? That's the first question I always ask. Did I have a role in this? Was there something I saw and ignored? Was there something Mm -hmm. I allowed was there, were there signs of behaviors that were unhealthy toward me and I didn't stop them? So I think that's a great first place to start because, and it's not to blame yourself, it's to learn from it. And, and always we can learn from every situation. And then to say, how can I recognize this? Looking back, hindsight I know is 2020, but take that situation and say, what were the signs that were there that maybe I didn't see? And how can I learn from those? How can I share those with my friends, my children, my spouses of, hey, here's a situation I was put in, I was betrayed, and looking back, here were the three key signs, or here were some things they said that I should have known, and I just want you all to learn from that. So I think anytime we can take a situation where we were hurt or damaged and we can learn from it. And we can feel like we walk away, not only moving forward, but moving forward stronger and smarter. I think that goes a long way in the resolution of that situation internally for us. And I think listening to other people helps us too. Because a lot of times people will see things that we can't see because we're in the midst of it. You know, you can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. But if someone that you respect comes to you and not in a controlling or gossipy kind of way says, Hey, I see an issue. I see some problems that might be coming here, you know, between you and this other person. Don't just dismiss that. Which is what we often do. Yeah. Very much, you know, well, Oh, you know, I understand why you might feel that way, but you don't know them like I do. Right. Or, I feel sorry for them because they've gone through this or whatever. We let people get away with too much sometimes. Toxic behavior is toxic behavior, whatever is causing it. Exactly. And if you want to walk through, well, what if I'm called to love that person? Well, you can still be there for someone and not be in relationship with them, or you can change a relationship with someone. If it's toxic, 
I remember having this conversation with my daughter years and years ago that there was a girl on the playground. And so we had this conversation that basically went like this. You are going to set the boundaries of your friendship. And it's going to sound a little bit like this. When you choose to do this for me, to treat me this way, to be kind, whatever it was, then I would love to play with you because now it's in her court. You've told her, oh, I can't wait to play with you. I want to be your friend. I'm just waiting on you to be my friend and be kind to me first. I love the way you phrase that. But we sometimes forget that when we become adults. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. Set boundaries. You don't have to be friends with everyone. And sometimes relationships just need to change. It doesn't always mean you have to cut someone off. Sometimes you just have to restructure what that looks like. Boundaries, you and I love talking about boundaries. Um, and I Dr. Do Henry Cloud, we yes, love him. We love him. I think this is the type of situation where boundaries can be absolutely imperative and the key to the solution. And I totally agree that you don't always have to go to the extreme of cutting someone off. But I do want to say that sometimes that is the only answer because sometimes people will not respect the fact that you've said no. Well, sometimes the only boundary that works is the boundary that that cuts the ties. So we kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit (laughs) hole there. Sorry. Um, But I I think it's important. Granted, they didn't have a chance to set boundaries with a kidnapper. What are you, right. you going to do? <laughs> but, you know, when it came to dealing with him, I was so fascinated by the fact that this guy constantly told them that there were multiple people in on his plot. He was part of a group. He was part of a gang. And it made me think about how that's what the enemy always wants us to think, mm. is that The problem that we're facing is bigger than it really is. Mm. Not that their problem wasn't big. I'm not saying that. But in our context of things that we're going through in our lives. Sure. Because it's an excellent way to control people. When you can amplify that fear factor, it's easier to control people. And so I think that when we start being too introspective, too overly worried about things, and we kind of ramp up our own fear factor. Absolutely. Then we can be a lot less effective um, for God's kingdom than we normally would be. So let's let's talk about some practical ways that we can avoid getting that fear factor ramped up unnecessarily. For them, totally understandable. But for us, <laughs> right. we're not usually facing that same situation. So what do you do when you feel yourself really kind of starting to, to let things spiral? I love that question. I just love that analogy, but I love that be question, that question because you know this, but not a, most of our listeners don't know that I dealt with at one point in my life, huge anxiety all the way to panic attacks. And, and at some point had to go, I cannot keep living this way. I have to deal with this. And so One of the things that as you were talking, I thought of is there's a reason the Bible talks about fear all the time, because God knows that that fear is probably the easiest thing the enemy can use to just stop us in our tracks, to debilitate us, to even almost turn us around. You know, it can 
we can regress in the face of fear. And so part of it that I would say is look up those verses <laughs> that talk about how God opposes fear, how God is the opposite of fear, that fear and God can't really exist in the same moment. So when you're giving into fear, you're kind of letting go of God. When you invite the presence of God in, in that moment, fear will disappear. It, there's just no option for that. One of the things I did more practically was I would ask myself, what is the worst case scenario? And I'd let myself go there for a minute. <laughs> um, and usually, first of all, the worst case scenario was not as bad as I was like sort of reacting. But even when it was, I would say, okay, if that's the worst case scenario and it's terrible, will God still be with you? Will you still be okay? Will it be hard? Yes. Can you get through it? And I know that may sound really silly, especially if this is something you've never experienced, but walking through those same questions every single time this happened would start to calm me and sort of, I think, created sort of, you know, new has in my brain that I didn't start to automatically go there that I could or I could get to that scenario quicker of oh it's going to be okay remember god will be with you remember it may be hard but you can get through it and to be honest the number one thing I did and this is probably the most practical answer I can give you as any solution to any problem you want to throw out I prayed I would pray my way through it and the first couple of times I had to pray for 2 hours two hours before I felt myself start to come out of those intense, completely panicked out of a fear that was really ridiculous. And it got less and less and less. And to this day, because I went through that, I probably have a slightly more keen awareness that I can feel, I can recognize fear creeping in <laughs> like that. You know, I know it because I know how my body reacts. And I can sometimes feel it in my body before I've even figured out what the situation is that I, that's causing the fear. And so that would be my last piece of advice is you have to start to recognize what is my reaction to fear because we all react differently. And when you can start to track and recognize, oh, my reaction to fear is I start to eat a lot. I shut down and I'm tired. I get an upset stomach. I mean, whatever it is, once you know it, then you can start to recognize it faster, which means you get to prayer faster. You get to your realizations and practical walkthrough, whatever, whatever tool you're picking up on, you can get to that tool faster, which gets you out of fear and back into the presence of God faster. And when we think that, oh, that's, that's just too hard because I'm, I'm too overwhelmed. A lot of what you said, this couple was doing. Yeah. So if they can do it, Right. While they're being kidnapped, <laughs> we can all do it too. Well, and we all have an option they did not have, which is pick up the phone, walk to your neighbor. I mean, whoever it is in your life, we can't have an episode with you and I without talking about community. Here's another reason. <laughs> when yes. I can't get over it myself, then I can call someone else or go to someone else's house or whatever, text someone, whatever that is. They didn't have that option but we most of the time do. Yeah, you can't get to my house very easily, but you can call and text me. And I do. So <laughs> It was also so interesting to me that we found out, you know, after the case against their abductor had 
been resolved in court. It had gone through everything that it needed to. It was the love of money and the desperation to get more of it. That's what drove all of this. You know, he'd been raised in the church, but he still made these horrific choices um, that caused so much trauma to so many people. And it just made me think, okay, it's not enough to give our young people the head knowledge (laughs) that this is what God says. This is what the Bible teaches us. We have got to reach their hearts. It's just got to be a part of them that's ingrained that they would never want to do something that offended God. Absolutely. Clearly he didn't get there. (laughs) He didn't get that part. So, you know, you and I worked in in children's ministry together for years and I'll never forget because you do want to reach them on their level. So you try to come up with different ways to present lessons. And we had one that we thought was going to help uh, you're laughing. You know exactly what story. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. We thought this story would help them see that even though a lot of what Jesus taught us seemed really hard, it was still true. And there was this thing about whether or not lipstick was made with fish scales. So there you go, people. Don't know if it still is. It used to be. And when their parents came and picked them up, what did you learn today? You've got fish scales on your lips, mom. (laughs) That's all anybody would talk about. So that was, you know, lesson learned. That failed. But what what ways can we reach out to them and, you know, try to make that heart connection? I realize that that's between God and them. But what can we do that might facilitate that a little? Sure. Well, first of all, That story is the reason that at the end of any class I've ever taught or any story I've ever told, we go through this. When mom and dad walk in and say, what did you learn today? Let's practice what we're going to (laughs) say. I'm I'm not kidding. I do that intrinsically all the time. I mean, that's been years ago because it also allows me, I mean, I do it, you know, let's make sure we have the right answer, but also it allows me to see like, what are they picking up on and what have they learned today? And also let's practice this answer. So mom and dad know what you really learned today. So I think that's that's great though. I I love how you said, I want to hear from them what they picked up because what I thought they were supposed to get and what they actually got might not be the same thing. And I honestly think that is key. You know, in, in our time together as children's pastors, there was research that came out from the Barna group and there were many revelations in there, but one of them that, that stuck with you and me was this idea that when they surveyed self-proclaimed evangelical Christians, their answers didn't look a lot different on a lot of topics and they were shocked. And so the first, why, what, what, why on earth is that? And one of the answers, and this is just one, um, came down to children's ministry for years prior to that in many ways looked like this. You're going to sit there. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to teach you the story. I'm going to quiz you then and see if you remember the story. What did this person say? What happened? What did they do? And then we're going to be done. And what the Barna group realizes that gave amazing head knowledge. If you could test those people on the story of Jonah and David, they knew them. They could quote the story. What it didn't do is exactly what we're talking about. It didn't reach their heart. It didn't get into 
life application would be the fancy phrase we would use. And so I think a very practical step, whether whether you're in church or just with your own children, is you have to remember that learning has to be two ways. It's not just, I'm going to preach at my kid all the time. I'm just going to tell them what to do. I also have to model it. So there's that. But then I need to have conversations with my children where we have, it's not just me asking them questions. Let them ask you questions. Have a conversation about, okay, you know, we've, we've read this story or we've heard that message. But what does that look like in my life? Because I don't really live in the same time that Paul did. So I can't, that, that seems silly. You know, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, let's talk about how does that apply to you and me? What does that look like when you're on the playground? Could that, I mean, you know, and help them if they're younger, give them scenarios that kind of lead them. Oh, could that particular knowledge be helpful on the playground? How do you think knowing this will affect the next time you get into this type of situation. So I feel like the the best way I can answer that in one word is interactive. I love that. Learning has to be interactive or it it really won't reach the heart. Yeah. That's the best one word that I think that you could have picked. (laughs) Now, last week we promised that we were going to give a surprise about you. Of course, everybody just got surprised finding out that I used to be a children's pastor. I'm sure that's something... (laughs) That a, that a lot of people that listen know, because how many, I mean, that's what children's pastors do. They become private investigators. Oh, sure. That's, yeah. You kind of went the, the other way. <laughs> you wanted to be an FBI agent when you were a kid. I did. I did. And I, do I, should I say I did? Do I still a little bit? Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, good point. Good point. And so you'll love this. The FBI agents that worked on this case, you know, it was very intense. You you can bond in those situations, especially since this particular kidnapping situation turned out better than most. Right. And so they were so over the moon when it did turn out well, they actually went out together for breakfast and shots, which is like the weirdest combination (laughs) that I can think of. But every year on the anniversary of the date that Larry and Connie were saved, this group still gets together. And so right there, community. Yeah, I love that. So amazing to have you on again and hear all of your wisdom. And remember, like she told us last time, what have you got getting ready to launch here in the next few months? I have my own podcast called Yay! Space for Grace. And maybe at some point I'll share a little more of the FBI story and where that led Ooh, or didn't I lead. Like <laughs> I like that. Well, you'll definitely be back. So there will be time to do that. Thank you yes. again for joining us. And you're welcome for, for picking um, a somewhat happier true crime yes, story. Yes, thank you so much. I'm going to, you know what that just taught me is I can throw out challenges to you and you will meet them. So now I'm going to figure out what is my next challenge in true crime for Lori. (laughs) I've been trained. Well, thank you again. We will talk to you later. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. I bet some of you, like me, were wondering when you listened to this episode, why does God allow such suffering? 
I've thought about that so many times throughout my life. And definitely reading this book made me wonder it again. And I got to thinking that maybe that isn't the right question to ask. Maybe a better question is, why do we allow it? Let's think about Proverbs 3.27 from the Message Translation. Never walk away from someone who deserves help. Your hand is God's hand for that person. Now, I doubt that anybody listening knew Chad, knew what he was planning, but is there something that we know about and we just don't want to get involved? I get that. I really do. But victims don't want to be involved either, and they weren't given a choice. They need God's hand to intervene, and God may be wanting to do it through you or through me. Remember how God used Moses, Esther, Noah, Nehemiah, Paul, and of course, Jesus? They each played a role in delivering others from suffering. And God is inviting each one of us to join him in that work today. If you have anything that you think needs you to get involved, if you feel God nudging you, maybe you suspect that a child you know is being abused, please call the authorities. Or maybe someone you know is making threats against somebody. Don't assume that they're just blowing off steam. Threatening people is not normal behavior no matter what society wants to tell us. Let someone know what's going on. Or is there a house in your neighborhood that just seems to have something shady going on? Call the police and let them check it out. You and I have been given the opportunity to reach out and be God's hand to someone. Ask him today to let you know where he wants to reach and then go there and reach with him. Check out the show notes where you can find more information You can find a link to get this book, and you can also find a link to sign up for my email list. That way, you'll know when new blog posts come out or other interesting information is made available. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Hyland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 